and you are listening to The Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. And I'm here with Dion O'Reilly. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> here we are again. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> it was your idea. Oh, I was like, did I ask you something? Yeah, it was your idea to do this. <laughs> to do this show. <laughs> and the show we're doing tonight is talking, actually about Dion's new book, which I'm holding in my hands, and it's called Ghost Dogs. And it is just about to be released, right? These are like sort of pre-copy copies. Yeah, these are, I think they're called proofs, right? These are proofs. These are called proofs. Or galleys? Uh, I think these are proofs. Galleys are like the PDF you get. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. What's That's inside. another thing. I but should know this. It's going to be released... Uh, February 17th, but you could, it's available for pre-order now. I love how everything can be pre-ordered now. It took a while. You can pre-order stuff, and so then it will be delivered right to you when it comes out. Mm-hmm. And it's released by Terrapin Books, and this is just a gorgeous feat of a book, Dion, and I'm really excited to talk about it with you today. Um, listeners might be familiar with Dion O'Reilly as a co-host on this show or a frequent interviewer, uh, a programmer on the Hive Poetry Collective, but today she gets to be the feature. Feels different. I'm kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm, I'm being presumptuous. No, it's different. You know, um, all of a sudden I'm on the other end of the interview. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like a photographer on the other side of the camera. Mm-hmm. A little weird. Yeah. It's a big change in your life when you have a book come out. It is. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about that more too, as we're um, having our conversation tonight. And first I want to tell people a little bit about you, since we don't usually put you in the hot seat like this. Um, Deanna's lived most of her life on a small farm in Soquel Valley. So she is a true local who has studied um, with Ellen Bass originally, right? The first time many years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. It was probably 25 years ago, that I, at least. At least 25 years More ago. More than that, yeah. Very but, cool. And then in the last maybe five, six years with yours truly. Yeah. I um, think I started with you in about 2012, maybe. Something like that. yeah. And now she's outgrown us both, just saying. <laughs> but <laughs> doing her own thing. Yeah. Um, Dan received her MFA from Pacific University and worked for over 30 years as a school teacher also leading private groups for her high school students. Her poetry and essays have appeared in the Massachusetts Review, New Letters, Sugar House Review, Rattle, The Sun, Bellingham Review, New Ohio Review, the local wonderful journal Catamaran, Swim, Grist, and other literary journals and anthologies. She is, as I mentioned, an active member of the Hive Poetry Collective, which produces podcasts and this radio show here on K-Squid. And also, has, we're starting to host events in town, poetry-related events. Um, so Ghost Dogs is her first full-length 
collection. It's my debut. It's I'm a debutante. Debut. You're a debutante. Do you get to wear one of those white puffy dresses? Or is Finally, it different? yeah. Finally. <laughs> I want to see that at your book release. <laughs> oh, a nice God. debutante dress. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm thinking maybe it'd be good for you to start us in with that first poem in the book, Insides, if I may make a request, and then okay. we can just delve in. I don't think I've ever read this one before um, aloud to an audience. Insides. On cold mornings as he stropped his blade on the wand of the whetstone, the butcher would tell me how he loved warming his hands inside a steaming beast. And I, a child, held out for him the steel bucket for the bull's heart, big as a rugby ball, barely beating. Its convent of small passages matrixed with muscle and stiff fat. I carried it with a vast plane of liver, the kidneys and pimply tongue, three trips at least, through the wet vetch and bees, bringing every bit of this bounty to my mother to fry in butter, quick, before the raw power waned. Mm, thank you for that, Dion. Wow, I'm still sitting with vetch and bees, bringing every bit of this bounty to my mother to fry in butter, quick, before the raw power waned. Just the sounds in there, I know we go straight to that, but I think uh, that's how the mind of poetry works, isn't it? In a lot of ways, it's the music first. Yeah. And then the meaning. Yeah. Sometimes it just comes out that way, and sometimes you see it developing in the poem, and you go back and you develop it a little bit more. Is that how you would describe this process with this poem, or...? Well, oddly sometimes. enough, this is a really short poem. It's probably the shortest poem in the book. And I wrote it in a workshop with Ellen Bass where she was teaching the long-armed poem, oh, how, how to write a long poem. And I wrote a long poem, and then I realized, I think it was you looked at it and you went, this is the heart of the poem right here. Oh, that's right. I was in love with this, and I think this was the final part of the poem. Right. But it, oddly enough, the shortest poem that I think I've ever written came out of an attempt to write a long poem. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen. Mm-mm. I also love this as an introduction to the other poems because this brings us into the landscape that the book goes on to describe, which is this landscape of farm and a ranch and the kind of life this child had, right, where she would be carrying a raw bull's heart, big as a rugby ball, still beating. And there's a kind of sacred that en- enters into the poem. It's convent of small passages. I just think that's such an interesting phrase because, of course, it makes it, you know, a type of monastery, right? Convent, monastery, I was given a ground. Wor- I was given a word list to... Oh. In that workshop, and convent was one of the words, and bees was a word that I had to try to include into the poem. Oh, that's so fun. So I'll say a little bit about that for people going, what's a word list? Mm. Um, So it's a little trick that we play on the mind, sometimes as poets, right? And I invite you all to try it at home, where you just write down um, maybe 10 words on a slip of paper. Uh, I like to harvest them from a book of poems, just opening to random pages, but you could do it from the dictionary if you wanted. 
I have just a huge word list that I go like to. Like an ongoing. I, like I can hardly imagine writing larder without having, you know, pulling from my pantry <laughs> of words that I throw into a pile and let rot. That's the way I think about it. I throw compost. into compost. Yeah, I let compost, and then the poems are like little things that grow out of this fertile pile of of words. I love that. I go into my compost pile and I just pull out a of mushroom, a chunk of stuff, <laughs> start, a rotted banana peel, and start cooking it up. And it makes the mind engage in this thing that's technically known as lateral thinking, right? Where you make new associations that you wouldn't necessarily make on your own. So having the passages in this heart become passages in a convent is an association that you might you might not just make, right, easily. But mm-hmm. it tricks the mind into making them. And I think so much of writing is playing games almost with your thinking. And then when you do that enough, when you work from a word list enough, then your mind starts making those associations on its own. More, doesn't it? Yeah, because once you've used convent, you're going to use monastery or palace or mansion. You're going to think that way more. Right. It starts to happen. And I think that's one of the... I mean, so much comes down to, with, with writing as with other arts, people say, do you have to just be talented or can you learn it, right? I don't know that there's an answer to that. But I've always thought one of the elements that's necessary to writing is having a what I call a weird head. Mm-hmm. And some of that comes more naturally to some people than others. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's an awkward thing to praise someone on, but I've been known to. Yeah. And yeah. perhaps guilty, we could praise you. Guilty as accused. Guilty as accused. We're a weird head. Mm-hmm. And a weird head can be maybe practiced a bit, but good to be born with it. A word list helps your word head. Yeah. Word a head. word mm-hmm. list helps. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you a little bit about how you came to this um, vocation of being a poet, what was that? What were some of the landmarks on that journey for you? Well, I think for a lot of writers, I came to it from reading. And I did grow up in a very isolated environment. And my father had a huge library. Mm -hmm. And um, many of the activities of the ranch didn't interest me. Um... I was not particularly interested in shoveling manure, not particularly interested <laughs> not particularly interested in clearing brush, not particularly interested in mending fences. Um, so I would sneak away with a book. Hmm. And uh, I, I think it just came out of reading. I found that I, I found that I like to write stories and I like to memorize poems. And so I started very young with writing. Mm-hmm. So you considered yourself a writer primarily growing up. That was your... A writer and an artist. And an artist. Mm-hmm. And then you went into teaching. Yeah, it didn't occur to me that I could do art as a living. It was not something in my family that uh, was encouraged particularly. It seemed impractical. And it just never occurred to me. I mean, I don't. I think I was in my forties when I realized that all my friends were either were some kind of artist, 
and maybe that was because I was one myself. <laughs> you, can, you know a lot by who you hang out with right. in some ways, right, as mm-hmm. we grow up. That's a sign. Growing up being an ongoing <laughs> process. I have yeah. a lot of friends who are criminals, too. Well, that might be <laughs> revealing in another way. Good to know. <laughs> and then, so you taught for a lot of years, and did you think, I have a, a book in, in me? Or when did that kind of happen for you? Well, I always wanted to do something like that. I always wanted to write a book. I just did not see how to do it. And I think it was from knowing you and knowing Ellen and seeing, oh, you work you work hard on your poems, you workshop them, you get as many of them published in as good a journals as you can. And I would look at Submittable and look at how you submit your work and manuscripts, They many of them ask to have a large number of the poems previously published. So I saw this path. You, pre, you publish a lot of poems, and when you have a lot of pu- poems published, you put them together in a manuscript and you send them out. And so I, I got a plan because that's what you did, and that's basically mm-hmm. what Ellen did, and that's what I saw people doing. And lordy, lordy, it worked. It works. <laughs> and that said, you know, a lot falls by the wayside, right? There are a lot of things that maybe even though they're published, you might include or not. But if you are writing enough, you're bound to have things that sort of stick together and suggest a manuscript. Because I would say this is more than just an assortment of poems, it's really a manuscript. Yes, it describes an arc. There's an arc. It, There's a story. It's like a memoir. It's like a memoir, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's not just, oh, I wrote a bunch of poems. Actually, we should have you read another poem okay. while we're at it. Which one do you want me to read? You want me to read Yellow? or Let's read Yellow. That's one, that's one of your favorites. That's a personal favorite. Strangely enough, this one's never been published anywhere. I like this one. Yeah, it's... My son just came back from Portland and was just talking about what it's like to come back to California when you've lived in the Pacific Northwest when you come back in the winter, and that's kind of in here. Yellow. It's February, and the acacia is blooming. Not wet. The winter's well along, and the flowers by now should be cold and sodden. No matter. The air is helpless, punch drunk with pollen. I know what's next, rooty mustard, fields of it, mixed with the weightless mouths of sourgrass showing their throats as they shift on listless stems. Yellow's the first color of spring. Hope yellow, sick yellow, kitchen yellow, pollen-petaled heart of the columbine yellow. She lost her mind and ran away with the pearl-handled kitchen knives yellow. Head home to California on the gray rabbit bus line from Seattle to San Francisco. Seats stripped out, hippies on dirty mattresses spooning and massaging above the hum of the drivetrain. Stop at Crescent City, stand on a ridge above a full bloom meadow. All that yellow feeding my brain after nothing but pine and pewter gray. I'm home, 30 years now. The rain behind me, but I'm calling for it down from the north to scrub the thick air, dampen the dried loam. I'm too old to climb the silver-skinned acacias, boxed with noxes of crumbly black, to sit 30 feet up and scratch the bark's thin skin, smell the whiskey wood stink, see the hard green beneath, 
smooth as muscle on an athlete's arms, to bower myself safe between limb and trunk, like I did when I was six, thinking nothing could touch me, not strange weather, not whatever way the world ends. Thank you. That was Dion O'Reilly reading her poem, Yellow, from her new book, Ghost Dogs, which is available, by the way, uh, to order from Bookshop Santa Cruz. So two for one, you can um, get your hands on Dion's book and also support Bookshop Santa Cruz, which we love to do around here. Yeah, it's available at Bookshop Santa Cruz and at Barnes & Noble and um, Amazon, available for pre-order. There we go. But if you don't want to uh, go to Amazon... You can go to our local wonderful bookshop, Santa Cruz. Which we like. Mm-hmm. We like that. So let's talk about yellow a little bit. I love this image of just all the superabundance of things that are yellow, that acacia blooming, the punch drunk with pollen, the columbine yellow, the pearl-handled kitchen knives, just all this superabundance of color and um Mustard. What? How did? What was the origin of this poem? How was this poem born? Well, as a child, I really did spend a lot of time in acacia trees. We had a lot of them on the ranch, um, and the smell. Uh, I just. I know some people don't like it, but the smell to me was wonderful. And um, we had a huge field of mustard and radish behind our house. My horse would graze in it. And it smelled, too, that rooty smell and the sour grass. It would all come around the same time. Mm-hmm. And when I lived in Seattle, I did live in Seattle for, a, like, almost a decade. And when I, I'd come home in February because February is miserable in Seattle. And um, I'd just see these fields, and it would be so dazzling. And you realize how hungry your brain gets for color, even though there's a lot of green. And people on the East Coast think it's so colorful in the Pacific Northwest because there's green. But when you're from California, it is not colorful. <laughs> you need that, the, the orange poppies or the yellow acacia, right? We're used to that. Even in the middle of winter in California, like today, there's all sorts of little narcissus blooming in the garden and different flowers. There's like an orange honeysuckle in my garden. So yeah, it's just the wonder of all the color in California. This is an ode in a way. Mm-hmm. It's a California ode and I think also a lament because when we get to that end, you know, thinking nothing could touch me, not strange weather, not whatever way the world ends. The year that I wrote this, there was hardly any rain mm-hmm. in February and the acacia was blooming. And as a child, the acacia was always wet. Oh, dripping. I remember that, right? The fog, but also just the rain coming off the leaves. Right. It, it in blooms winter. in winter, basically, um, right. when it's really raining. And, and it should have been wet, but it was dry and powdery. But even so, it smelled good. And even so, the mustard was coming up and, and being beautiful. But it, things weren't quite right the way they weren't quite the way I remembered them as a child. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you saying that, too, because the even so, even so, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think sums up a lot of what you've written in Ghost Dogs because it points toward a lot of difficulty in, in early life. It points toward some of the passages of adulthood that are painful and first and second loves, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, and there's a kind of raw 
beauty that courses through it as well. Yeah, I think that what's a lot of the time when you're in anguish, um, it's your thoughts that are rising up that are giving you anguish. And the wonderful thing about nature is the you can look at it and you can focus on it and you can let it into you and your thoughts drop away. And I think that that is something that I learned when I was growing up out in nature, that whatever was going on, I could just put the thought. It's. I mean, it's. It's a little like meditation, a little like dissociation. It's a little bit above. Where the t- the two shall meet, the yeah. twain <laughs> shall <Yeah>. meet. <laughs> it's a place you could go mm-hmm. into beauty, and it turned out to be a place that's very conducive to, to poetry. It's the solace that. Yeah, there's the irritant and the solace, as we've discussed before on the show. There was a right. lot of irritation. There was a lot of pain, and there was a lot of solace in the beauty of. The ranch. It was called Love Creek Ranch. It's a great name. Mm-hmm. And so irritant would be a lot of the hardships mm-hmm. of that early life. But then what would, would you say that beauty tends to be your solace? Or what would you say tends to be your solace that you go to as a writer? Wildness. Wildness. I mean, internal wildness and just like m- cutting loose, just mm-hmm. letting my mind cut loose, letting my humor cut loose, and then and natural beauty. And a combination of that. Of the two. Yeah. Gosh, let's read another one. Do we have one that follows from that? That's, does that 62 fall from that, or do you have another one you'd like to read? Um, why don't we read um, maybe the last one in the book, All the Hungry Falcons? Great. All the Hungry Falcons. Appetite makes them keen when they scan the tunneled field for shivers in the dead grass. Their vision sharpens, pupils dilate. From a mile away, they see their feed and they take it. All my life, I've stowed my stories like a box of banned books under the bed, each one unforgiven, an arc of trouble and want. They quicken my hunger for what I'll never have or never have again. A mother mainly, certain men, but a sister and brother too. A city I walked in with hot paper cups. My lips foamed with cappuccino as it rained and rained. Oh, the world feels tidal when I get like this, when I can't stop hunting for something intimate and filling. I see it lift from the soil, the sun, a muzzle flash, turning the meadow bright, burning off the haze. I soar in, see it magnified, everything itself only more so. Thank you, Dion. That was Dion O'Reilly reading All the Hungry Falcons from her new book, Ghost Dogs. And it was interesting hearing you read that and seeing already these themes, like We talked about that bright Rudy mustard, and here it's turning the meadow bright, you know, that kind of color. I see the visual artist in Mm, you mm -hmm. coming out in those moments. And also in this sense of, well, here we have the rain again, right? It rained and rained. That's um, from living in Seattle. In all the Mm -hmm. wetness. And then having this, I can't stop hunting for something. And I feel like that hunger is something that comes back 
again and again in the poems as well. Yeah, that's kind of part of this. That's kind of that's kind of a solace. That desire. I mean, passion and desire to have those in your life is such a gift. To just want things, even if they're things that you shouldn't have. I know that's not very Buddhist, but. It's sort of that passion has really driven me into my art and my poetry, that wildness and passion. It's led me in some bad directions, but it's also really been channeled into my art. And, um, I, you know, I don't know how I would live without it. I think it's a really interesting thing to say, Dan, because we think of wanting or especially wanting things we can't have as a burden often. Um, so it's interesting to me that you see it as a gift. It's propelled me in a lot of different directions, and some I could look back on with regret, but it's also propelled me into my writing. Because you wanted something. I want something. I write because I want something, and it, I can't stop writing because it's rewarding. Because you're almost getting the thing. You get that something. You, you get something. You, yeah, you get something out of it. Um, How would you define that something if you could? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Well, it, it gives you pleasure. Um, I, when I get a draft off, um, even if it's not what I'm going to use, like I told you, I wrote a draft yesterday that I went back to today, and I only took one line out of it. To use. To use. But when I wrote that first draft... I knew I had something, and there was a pleasure in it. It's like solving a math problem or finding money in the street. Mm. You just get that pleasure. There must be a little squirt of serotonin you get in your brain. You solved a problem. There's thoughts swirling in your mind. There's a story. There's a story inside you. There's an experience that you just, I just have a passion and desire to share it. I want to be heard. want to be heard. I want that story told. Maybe that's, okay, now I feel like we're getting close to the marrow of it. I'm, thanks for just riffing like that. Um, something about really being heard, really saying the thing. Yeah. You I'm know, hearing myself. It's not just other people. That's right. part of it. You want other people to hear you, but you want to figure it out yourself. That's the math problem part. Mm -hmm. It's like solving a math problem. It's interesting. I'm reading this book called We Begin in Gladness by Craig Morgan Tyker. And it's a book of, of poetry critique and analysis. But he says, at poets are people. And I pushed against this when I first read it for just a moment. But he said, poets are people who at some point in their life were unable to speak. I think I was always able to speak, but no one was listening. <laughs> no one was listening. <laughs> okay, we should add an addendum. Or they spoke, and no one listened. And everyone said, shut up. <laughs> we can just add that. I'll write him a note. <laughs> well, We talked, but... <laughs> well, also, when you tell the truth and you're told not to, and you're told to keep quiet, or you're told you're bad or dirty for telling the truth, Mm -hmm. um, some people like me don't stop saying it. They just start also writing it down, maybe. Yeah, then you write it down. It creates a kind of ledger mm -hmm. of whatever all that material is. Because mm -hmm. we speak things in order to work them out a lot of the time. Right. Probably. Right. But when you're writing, it's like you take a rough rock 
out of the soil of your soul and you work on it until it's beautifully faceted yeah. and shining. And that's satisfying too. That's super satisfying. You turn whatever happened to you into something beautiful. I kind of feel sorry for people who aren't writers in a way because when something bad happens to them, what do they do? I mean, they go to court or they complain. <laughs> Write a letter to the editor? Yeah. Oh, no, that's writing. Sorry, that is writing. Or they moan to their friends. But when you're a writer, mm-hmm. like anything that happens to you, you can go, as bad as this is, sometime I can write about it. I guess in a way that's part of the word dark humor we can have as poets too. Like something terrible happens to your friend and you, who's a writer and you say, well, material, right? I yeah. mean, the heartless among us, <laughs> myself included, have sometimes said that. Yeah, I say it to myself. I say it to others. This, like the, this experience is worth something. I can get something from this. Mm-hmm. No matter how craggy and messed up and horrible this is, I'm going to get a pearl out of it. That's very redemptive. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I'm just going to um, remind people what they're listening to. This is the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD Santa Cruz, a.k.a. K-Squid, at 90.7 FM. So thank you. That was just our little brief announcement break. Um, so we're back. We're here with the Hive Poetry Collective. This is Danusha Lamaris and Dion O'Reilly. And I wanted to ask you something, Dion. You were just talking about that kind of that satisfaction of getting the poem, of oh, polishing that stone. And in that vein, how has it felt for you, A, having a book out, B, your first book, and C, sorry, it's a lot in one, in this moment of your life? What is this like for you? Hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of um, stress and anxiety on having a book come out. You don't know how it's going to be received. It's very personal. It's very honest. It's very brutal. You know, this is, um, you know, it's not all pretty, the stuff in my book. Um, You don't know how it's going to be received. Um, You don't know if people are going to buy it. so that there's some stress around that and a lot of logistical things like you know the book tour and the release party. So though all that is kind of stressful, but it really is the culmination of a dream. It's something I've always wanted to do. And um it, it it's it's yeah, it, it is. It's like I've never really had a, a bucket list like other people. Uh, my bucket list, if I'd had one, was just to do a book. I've always wanted to do a book. So it's extremely rewarding in that way. I feel like a different person. I feel like a person who actually has lived their dream. That's pretty profound. Yeah. yeah that's so it's a, a big com- pleasure. It's a combination of anxiety with that. With and living, a dream come true. The dream, living the dream. <laughs> living the anxious dream come yeah. true is what we're saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I know what you mean. It's vulnerable and weird. And in terms of this time and, in my and, life, um, you know, I, I worked really hard as a teacher, and I know I had a lot of success as a teacher, but I always felt like I was beating my head against a wall in a way because it wasn't exactly where I should have been. So I gave it my best shot, uh, sort of like a long, bad marriage. Um, And then I got out, and four years later I had a book. 
That's pretty fast, actually, when, yeah. we, when we look at what it takes to write a book. Actually, it's three years later. Oh, I hadn't realized it was that quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, three and a half. <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, yeah, I just feel like I had this stored up energy to do the creative work I wanted to do that was not quite happening in my job. Mm-hmm. And it gave you that outlet. Yeah. The, and a uh, different identity uh, probably too, right? And a different identity. Right. Yeah, I'm coming to terms with that identity because I've spent, you know, over I'm over 60, I've spent all these years not being this person I want to be. And then? And now I am, and it's like I don't know what to make of it. It's um, kind of like waking up in the morning with a new face or something. I, I would like to admit, I'd also like to wake up in the morning with a new face <laughs> if I could. If we could just pick a part, that would be fun. Yeah. That a part to have a new one. I, I think you have a very lovely face. Thank you, Denisha. You, you, you're looking good tonight, too. <laughs> thank you. We all, you always do. <laughs> Why, thank you. And you're doing this a great job. It's a fashion poetry show. Yeah. No. <laughs> if you guys could see us now. Dan's actually wearing an amazing sweater. Um, would you like to read us another poem? Yeah. What shall I read? Well, since you just mentioned your age, could you oblige me? I'm older than this now. Um, let's see. Um, at 62. At 62. A poem of hers that I enjoy. This one was in the New Ohio Review, and they put it on page 62. That is so clever. Yeah. Someone else noticed that. I don't think I would have. At 62, looking at my x-ray, the doctor says my hips resemble those of an 80-year-old woman. Weeks later, when I huff into a tube to blow out virtual birthday candles, my allergist mentions, with what seems smug satisfaction, that my lungs whistle like an 80-year-old woman. Oh, hypothetical 80-year-old woman. You skeletal model walking the hospital runway in this year's open-assed robe of blue dotted cotton, how do you like being the it girl of mortality? Archetype of you are nearly nothing. I want a physician who lists my body's features like a used car pitch. Here's a real beaut light pink 62 Plymouth Valiant with a push-button transmission, perky butt fins, cat print leather interior, spurs hang from the mirror, and tires with some tread. And its driver, an aging prima ballerina, rose-red hair and rhinestone glasses, out for a spin on a racetrack, falling behind while fans applaud for old time's sake, looping and looping before she veers off through a cow field. <laughs> Thank you, Dion. <laughs> I love that poem. <laughs> Little known fact, I used to have a light pink 62 Plymouth Valiant. Ooh, did it have a name? Yeah, Baby. Oh, that's a good name. Yeah, and um, it had um, not cat print leather interior, cow, it had cow print. Let, um, fuzzy seats and it had spurs hanging from the mirror. I actually had that car. Did you sell it? You know, I gave it to one of my students. <gasps> you were a very generous teacher. 
Yeah, it really helped her out in a time when she needed it. And it did have a push-button transmission. It was such a fun car. Slant 6 engine. I know there are some people out there that know about Slant 6 engines. It was a wonderful car. I drove it for many years. And with perky butt fins. It had little fins, yeah. This is so fabulous, Dan. I love the it girl of mortality. Archetype of you are nearly nothing. I mean, this just says so much about... How the culture holds age aging. And I the weird like. things doctors say. And some weird things doctors can say. The lungs of an 80-year-old woman, the hips of an 80-year-old woman, right? A whole lot of that. But I love what you've done with it. You've kind of taken that irritant. I imagine that was somewhat irritating. If mm-hmm. Whatever happened to the speaker, we want to say the speaker of this poem. It was really frightening, actually. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, you think, oh, oh, everything's really going to pot. Yeah. And and it somehow led to this. You're like, I'm going to do something with that. Right, right. This was just making fun of it. I think very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the driving off the and looping and looping before she veers off through a cow field. That's yeah, just, it I took a that. while to get to that ending. I think you helped me with that ending. I think I just loved that image in it. Yeah. I don't know how much help I am or I'm not, but I just know what I like. <laughs> I liked that. You can really see that. You can see just someone just like going off the tracks there. Off the rails, yeah. off the tracks. Yeah, and everyone's and applauding. And loving it. <laughs> everyone's applauding. <laughs> That's exactly how I see it. I wondered, um, just in terms of craft, because, you know, so much crafting goes into the stuff that, uh, it's like ballet dance, I think, when... Someone is mastering their craft. It just looks easy and effortless, much as ballet always looks effortless when it's, you know, a professional ballet. But we know that it's not. What are some of the things that you really push for in your poems and kind of your edge craft-wise? What, are, what do you practice? Well, I feel like every word and every line has to pay its way. I kind of think to myself, okay, if these person people were working for me, would I pay them? Every si- yeah, I think every single line and word has to be well chosen and uh, pack a punch. Kind of justify its uh, reason for being in the poem, right? And because you want, I really feel like first and foremost, you want to entertain people and engage people and inform people and that means people have to read it and so there has to be stakes and people really have to want to turn the page and they have to want to get to the end of the poem so every line has to be engaging that way yeah it's you know what you're saying reminds me of what Sharon Olds the poet Sharon Olds says she won the Pulitzer a few years back and an amazing writer of this generation of writers right and poet and she said that she learned a lot from Stephen King. Oh, yeah. About writing poems. Isn't that fun? Not from his poems, but from the sense of suspense. Absolutely. Right? And, you know, keep your reader reading, reading. Keep them on the page. They've got better... Th- I always say they've got better things to do. They could be, you know, filing stuff, picking up their kids. <laughs> well, yeah. we want them to pick up their kids if they yeah. need to, <laughs> just to say. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think I agree, and I think that um, I've always been a big reader of fiction, and I love Stephen King. Mm-hmm. I think he, he I think he's a he's a great writer. Um, I also think you need to surprise your reader. 
Well, what did Horace say? No surprise. And Robert Frost, no surprise for the writer. No surprise for the reader. You have to surprise yourself. So you have to be really digging. You have to be really honest. So I like to ask myself, what am I saying here? What am I talking about? What do I not want to say? And what then am say I hi- that. And say that. What am I hiding? I'd love for you to read us a poem where you felt you surprised yourself. Gosh. Um, More than usual, maybe. Oh, how about, oh, scavenged is so intense. Do you want to read that? I guess so. I'd love to hear it. Okay, so, um, all right. Trigger warning, this is a little intense. Um, It's about an accident I was in. Scavenged. And it starts with an epigraph from our own Dorian Locks. The epigraph reads, What becomes of us once we've been torn apart and returned to our future? When I was 19, a flame clung to my back, ate me to the spine. Torchlit and alone, I ran through the house, a contagion, cindering couches and carpets. Flayed, my fingertips peeled back to the nail beds. My spongy tissues touched air, light, and the steel caught where they took me. Each day they peeled me like Velcro from my sheets, left bits of my meat there, lowered me into betadine, scrubbed me to screams. That became my history, scavenged by the curious. They see my twisted fingers and are hungry for the tail. I've done the same, stared at a leg's nubbed end, wanted to touch it, Feel the cut bone under the knob. Hear its shrapnel story. I want to know how that man was alive, arms glistening, playing basketball from a high-tech chair, making his shots. The body's scarred terrain becomes consecrated field. We gather to pick through the pieces that remain an ear hanging from its hinge of skin, diamond stud in the lobe, ring finger shining with its promise band of gold. Mm, thank you, Dion. That was Dion O'Reilly reading her poem, Scavenged, from her new book, Ghost Dogs. Thank you for that. And there's something just so um, evocative about ending on the image of that gold ring. That was the surprise in this for me that um, I wanted to write in a really visceral way about being having been burned. And I realized that people are very curious about it um, and they want to hear the story, but they think they want to hear the story, but then they don't really want to hear the story because it's really more than most people can handle because this poem is just the tip of the iceberg of what happened to me. But what I realize is the fact that I'm living and the fact that I carry these scars is like a promise band of gold. It's, it's hope for people that whatever happens to them, there's something on the other side. 
Mm-hmm. And that was, in some ways, the surprise for you to learn, too, writing this? That That's where it ended up. And that's why people scavenged one another. That's why we scavenge one another. That's why people want to hear your story. They want to know how you how you lived. How you lived. And, right. and um, that's why we tell stories. And, um, yeah... And, and that's why we tell other people's stories that might not be our stories. I think sometimes that's why appropriation goes on is because we want to take that for ourselves, that survival. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Where, in a way, I, I think that people value story more than anything else other than the basics of shelter, you know, warmth, food. There's something that pulls us towards stories so deeply, and I think what you're talking about gets sort of points toward that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the great teachers tell stories. I mean, the, Jesus had the parables. Jesus was good at stories. Yeah. Good storyteller. <laughs> so thank you again for joining us. This is Danusha Lamaris here with Dion O'Reilly. And thanks for listening on this rainy night in Santa Cruz. How we love the rain here now after all those years without rain. Dion, would you grace us with another poem? Well, this is the titular um, poem of the book, Ghost Dogs. Two hundred pounds apiece with strong bodies, great black heads and sad, sagging faces. They were my companions through the long years of childhood. Mastiffs. Herds of them, studs, a handful of bitches, scores of puppies. Bored in dusty clumps, they guarded the driveway, pulling themselves up onto oversized padded feet to trail my horse through the hills, then, with surprising speed, racing up deer trails in futile pursuit of coyotes or bobcats. My friends wrist risked stitches in their thighs by knocking on the door. And when the proud cars of boyfriends pulled up, a gleaming 68 Camaro, a convertible Bel Air, the pack ambushed them, ferocious muzzles breathing steam drooling on the windows. Now, all these years after leaving home, I miss the dogs, how formidable they were negotiating between me and the world. I have no silent creature at my side to touch on her wrinkled brow, no coiled animal to summon in love and ready to die. Wow, another killer ending there. (laughs) Thanks for reading that. That was Dion reading her poem, Ghost Dogs. And just hard to even imagine herds of mastiffs. Well... There was one time in particular when we had two bitches whelp at the same time. Bad timing. And we had about 20 puppies. That's crazy. And that you kept them. Well, my parents sold them. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it was like a little business. They took them to shows and people would bring their bitches to be bred by our studs. And there was... That was my life, just surrounded by these huge dogs that loved me. Wow. And they were vicious. I, I look back and think, 
why would anyone need like a herd of vicious mastiffs? <laughs> but if that's what you're used to, hey. If that's what you're into. If that's what, and that's, I mean, that's what's so interesting, I think, about so many moments in the book is that they describe a kind of parallel reality in which that herd of mastiffs makes sense. And I could see not wanting or knowing how to live outside of it. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would take like five mastiffs down to 26th Avenue Beach and run along the beach with five huge mastiffs. Off leash, I'm imagining. All the mosh leaves just running around. I still run into people in Santa Cruz and go, they go, do your parents still have those big dogs? <laughs> I love that. That's what they remember you for. That's what Mastiff girl. Said. Yeah. You know, but we've was, all got to be known for something. Yeah, was all, they were with me all the time. Wow. So it's a title poem of her book, uh, which I'll remind the listeners, is called Ghost Dogs. And these are the ghost dogs that uh, are, are uh, in question. But there was um, a discovery in this poem, because I really did not realize how strange that was until I wrote this poem. Isn't that amazing? I, I did not realize how strange it was to have these really vicious dogs. Like my friends would come over, a friend came over once when I wasn't home and they ripped her thigh open. Oh my goodness. Pretty frightening. Mm -hmm. And this was before people sued each other easily, I imagine, for that. Right. Well, these were country people too. Go get stitched up. Yeah. Hi, Rosie, if you're out there. Sorry about that. Sorry about the dog scratch. That scar on your thigh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, it reminds me of, there's pictures of the actress. um, She was married to Antonio Banderas. Oh, Melanie Melan- Griffith. Thank Gr- you. Yeah. Melanie Griffith, where for a while when she was growing up, I think she was sort of a preteen or young teenager, her family lived with lions. I think I'm not misspeaking this. I've seen the photos. And I don't remember why. It's like mom was helping a lion sanctuary or one of those things. But there's a picture of her with a full-grown, fully-maned uh, lion lying in her bedroom, in her bed, right? In, in her bedroom. And it's like a frilly, you know, little nice girl's room, except that she has a full-grown lion. And that's what she was used to. That's just so fascinating to me and obviously terrifying, too. What I mean, you can't... If something goes wrong, it goes terribly wrong. Yeah, when but you're writing didn't. poems, you're really questioning your reality. You really see it as an outsider. You get perspective, but that's wild. So people would call oh. her up on the phone. What are you doing, Melanie? Oh, just lying around. Lying around. <laughs> a little writer, writerly pun. Yes. No harm in that. Well, some people think so. <laughs> <laughs> but it does. It gives you a bird's eye view of your own life, right? Mm-hmm. Things that you maybe take for granted suddenly are set off in relief. It's a little bit like a memory resurfacing or something. You see it suddenly in a whole different way. Especially once you share it, probably. Do you find that? And people go, oh, my God, you had herds of mastiffs, people like me. Yeah, there's all these phases. There's the writing it where you have a realization, you take it to group, you have a realization, it goes out in the world, and and you get another reflection on it. People talk to you about it. It's just you really see your life from all these different angles when you're writing. Mm -hmm. I think it can literally save your life. What do you think? What's your experience? Well, like I said, I don't know what... I don't know how I would live if I didn't have this passion to write. It really is like a compulsion, compulsion almost. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would just be kind of at loose ends if I uh, 
didn't have that. Didn't have it. Yeah. I'd love to hear you read another one. We have little time left. Um, Pilgrim? Or do you have one marked that you'd well, like I to read? Well, I wanted to do another happiness. Oh, that's a hard call. Well, well, we can do Pilgrim. We have time for both. Okay, let's start with Pilgrim then. I very, very rarely read Pilgrim. Um, here it is on page 17. Pilgrim. They don't look where they're going as they drive their mud-cake trucks and Subarus along the crumbled cliffs at Pleasure Point. The surfers, twisting their spines for a glimpse of Sewer Peak or gazing at an angle toward the hook, seeking the swells that curl around the reefs, the high wedges that crunch the shore. They can't stop traveling west, an endless summer of shore breaks and peak breaks to a sun that never sets. I knew a man who wanted me like that. He followed me like a pilgrim in pursuit of a saint, his truck an immaculate chapel, offerings stowed in the glove box or swinging from the rear view. When we met, he laid his gifts before me on his palm, Tithes of rhinestones, strands of faux sapphires, dolls with waxy faces, sunglasses of green celluloid. So I let him have me. And after, his face scoured clean, radiant like a child's, he confessed his sins, the daughters he'd abandoned, his angry wives, said he knew I could save him. But soon he tired of me, no longer cruising by my driveway as I left in the morning, no cards lush with Rossetti paintings in my mailbox, no deep blue feathers torn from a blue jay's from a dead blue jay's wing tucked in an envelope. He died years ago, but I still think of him when I see those smooth, barefoot bodies with nothing but towels knotted at their waists as they pull neoprene skins up their legs and cold-nippled torsos, then run toward the pumping waves. I can't help hoping I'll see him, still searching for me, in his Studebaker pickup and ruined straw hat. Thank you, Dion. That was Pilgrim from Dion's new book, Ghost Dogs. And the thing I'm noticing hearing that and just listening to the kind of arc of poems you've been reading for us tonight is that turning toward the sacred somehow in the midst of the ordinary, even toward the holy. And so here, of course, the title Pilgrim and then the stanza, he followed me like a pilgrim in pursuit of a saint, his truck an immaculate chapel. Um, I love that image of the truck as chapel. Did that arrive also through sort of one of those word association lists or that happened a different way? Do you remember? No, I did not have a list for this. Um, I just think that for this particular man, this Studebaker truck was like a chapel. I mean, it was spotless and he, he did keep gifts in it in case he ran into me. Um, um, yeah, I guess, I guess once again, this is a poem about passion and the misdirections it can take. 
And yet there's some kind of redemption in it. Yeah, I I think, you know, at the time it was not a pleasant experience knowing this man. Um, But in memory, things can become enshrined. And I mean, even the worst relationships, I, I kind of would like to see that person again, just see what happened to them. Just to revisit the the sacred ground. Just, yeah, just the, the way the poem does that. I guess right. That is the revisit. Yeah, here. yeah. I'd love to have you read that last one, the another happiness, the one we can. You want to tell the readers how they can find the hive um, on the internet and stuff while I'm looking for it, real quick. Yeah, I'm so bad at remembering all the key things, but we do have a presence on Facebook, the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. And so you can find our Facebook page there. And then we also have a blog. Hivepoetry.org. You Thank can find, you. You can find the everything one. there. And we're on Twitter. We are so sophisticated. Yeah. And of course, we're here most Sundays at 8 o'clock. So we need to tell everyone that. Thank you for reminding me that those are the places you can find us. And we'd love to hear from you if you want to connect with us through any of those um venues and let us know what you thought of the show or with requests for other shows we'd love to hear from you and you can pre-order my book ghost dogs by Deanna riley at bookshop santa cruz and amazon okay all right so now this is another happiness another happiness publish your best work find a decent job eat some sizzling octopus the many kissing tentacles meaty on your tongue success you think joy For a while, anyway, then it's another mess in the paper, the endless scroll of rapists and dead turtles, another photo of a world leader with his corn-baked face. So you go on a car trip north to find some good rain. You get to Seattle, and the lawns are scab brown. Your old home on the lake, a lime green high-rise, always looking for something, answer keys, antidepressants, more friends, another dog, another slim poetry book where the Pope keeps pushing and pushing line after line of exquisite description, one astonished metaphor after another escalating into an ecstatic revelation. You can't write like that. You don't read enough Virgil and Milton. Don't start your day writing lines of iambic pentameter. Detroit, 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 Detroit. And you can't meditate like some of the big names do. When you sit, it feels like termites streaming in and out of your arteries. On the screen of your inner vision, all your arrogance, ecstasy, and gloom. Your crappy conversations with the bitches in Zumba Gold telling you to irrigate your nostrils, get therapy, put a prong collar on your mud. But admit it, sometimes in fall, You look up and see an arrowhead of duck flight, lonesome and luxurious. If only you could understand how fungus flowers from the mind of the land, how fractal arms of trees shard the sky. If only you could exult in ash falling, the west on fire. It would be like you just arrived on earth. Thank you so much for that, Dion, and thank all of you for listening to the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. Good night. Good night.
Welcome to Cephalotron, an hour of electronics.